get prepared. It's a marathon. It's stressful, time-consuming, ton of work. Most successful business people, if they're selling a business, they're probably already working very long hours. Layer on top of that, all the work you're now going to be doing, negotiating and documenting a complex transaction. Be prepared for emotional wrangling. There's going to be times you're suddenly thinking, I, this is my baby. I built this business. I wanted my kids to take over. Or maybe it's just, I'm so fed up with that buyer. They're acting like jerks or I, I can't take the, the extra work. Be prepared for all that. It's going to happen. You know, eye on the prize. Eye on the prize. We're this close. Don't quit now because we're almost there. Welcome to the Pool Chasers Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Viafania, joined by my co-host, Justin, the bearded plumber, Bowie. That's right. And today, we've got two very special guests. we got Garth Stevens and returning guest, Buzz Giz. How you guys doing? Doing well. Doing well. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, dude. Your episode did so well with us, and you know, thank you for introducing us to Garth. And we've got some really cool topics to go over today, so really excited to jump into it. Absolutely. Thank you both for coming. Yeah. Thank you. So Garth, you're uh, new to the show. Can you introduce yourself to the listeners? Maybe like a quick bio and how you know Buzz? Sure. Absolutely. So uh, Garth Stevens, I'm a corporate attorney. Uh, sizable part of my work is M&A or mergers and acquisitions, which is fancy talk for I help people buy and sell companies. Um, been doing it for about, I think I just passed 28 years. Uh, 23 of that here in Phoenix uh, at Snell & Wilmer, which is a large law firm downtown. Um, a, a lot of the work I do is what, what you would call sell-side deal work, meaning you're representing the sellers of the business. And those deals, you know, they range in all sorts of sizes from you know, relatively small up into you know, north of $100 million. But a, a typical, what we call a middle market deal is somewhere, let's say, in the 25 to $75 million range. In their rev, in the business revenues that we're talking uh, in in the purchase price. Actually. Oh, purchase price. Yeah, okay, yeah, Got but it. but smaller deals too, and larger ones. The most of the aspects of the sale transaction doesn't differ that much, so I don't tend to focus too much on dollar value of the deal value because it, the work is largely the same. The issues are largely the same. Sure. I got to know Buzz, gosh, back in something like two thousand and four. I think yeah. it was. Um, another partner in our firm was doing work for Buzz and his family, and uh, they were getting ready to sell Paddock Pools back then. So uh, I was the lucky guy that got tapped to do that and uh, worked with Buzz and his family all through that, successfully sold the business. We've stayed in touch over the years doing a handful of things. And then, I don't know, what, how many years back now? Was it four? Uh, I got close in uh, August of 18. So 18, okay. Yeah. So then we, we sold uh, Paramount. So, so I got a second kick at the can to work with Buzz and always a good time. So first one must have gone good if he called you back again, right? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, and many calls in between, by the way. Okay, lots of my deals. <laughs> so, Fair. Yeah. Now, were you feeling like you hit the jackpot? Like you just keep <laughs> hitting them up? Like, hey, you got anything else to sell? <laughs> Any other crazy businesses? I, I got to tell you, I've been very lucky over the years. In almost all cases, I always really like the clients I work with, and it, it makes such a difference. It makes the job enjoyable. That's awesome. Was uh, was Buzz your first pool related? Uh, Merger acquisition sale. Yeah, actually. Yeah, he yeah, was. So nice. Learned lots about the pool business. Nice. Yeah. And I know we can't say names, but you've represented some other big pool industry deals too, right? Yeah, uh, and all on the sell side. Uh, so in Arizona, California, 
had, I guess, had a couple brewing in Texas and one back east um, that are sort of slowly in the works. But uh, yeah, I've done a number of them now. So I guess jumping into it, what are some of the structures that you can set up when you're selling your business or what kind of deals can you ask for? Or can you kind of run us through what that looks like? Sure. Typically, pool deals are, are one one of two ways and there's possibly a third option. One is what's referred to as an asset purchase deal. And that's where the company itself, so XYZ Pool Company, is selling its assets, it's selling its customers, its equipment, it's going to transfer its employees over, assuming those employees want to go over to the buyer. Um, and so that's sort of deal type number one. Buyers typically like that structure because any of the sort of residual liabilities or potential skeletons in the closet, potential environmental issues, what have you, they will stay with the seller company. Uh, the next structure is referred to often as a stock purchase or it's an equity purchase deal. Nowadays, many companies are LLCs, so they don't have stock. Uh, in an equity purchase deal, the, the owners of the company are the sellers and the company itself is being sold. So rather than having to transfer over the trucks or the equipment, whatever else, the whole company goes lock, stock and barrel to the buyer. Um, you know, there's, there's added risk to the buyer with that because the buyer is buying everything that comes with that company, whether they know about it or not. Um, and there's tax advantages and benefits of, of each structure. Those, those things tend to get sorted out pretty quickly. The third approach you see sometimes more with companies that have multiple numbers of shareholders is a merger transaction. And that's where it sometimes it can just be difficult. Uh, if you've got say 10, 15 owners of a company, Trying to get them all in the process of negotiating the purchase agreement and selling it can be a bit of an exercise in herding cats. So <laughs> a merger transaction is is structured. It's still considered an equity sale, but it's a deal between the target company itself and the buyer. So you need to get typically majority owner approval, but you don't have to get every single owner to sign up on the deal. I see. I get these emails all the time, you know, as a business owner, you get hit by everybody, right? I get these emails and it's always like chips off the table and it's like, keep your business, but take some chips off the table. Sure. What is that? What is that? You hear that typically nowadays where the vast, let me back up. The vast majority of buyers nowadays are private equity firms uh, or they are private equity firms that have bought another say, pool company that wants to sort of acquire another pool company as what's referred to as a bolt-on transaction. That's sort of a colloquialism uh. in their business. But typically, when private equity firms buy companies, instead of saying, we're going to buy 100% of your company or 100% of your assets, and, and here's your cash, and off you go, they'll want the seller to stick around uh, and retain around, usually it's around a 15 to 20% ownership interest. So when we talk about, you know, take some of your chips off the table, what they're saying to the owner is, you can sell us effectively 80, 85% of the company. You retain ownership of 15, 20%. And then later, when we, the private equity firm, resell your company, because that's what private equity firms do. They buy these companies with a view to reselling them, say, around five years down the road. Hmm. The company, if everything goes according to plan, these private equity firms, when they do this, the idea is to triple the value of the company in about five years. So... The owner who has retained his 15, 20% will then sell when the private equity firm sells. And by that time, their 15, 20%, again, if all goes according to plan, is worth three times more than when they originally sold the company. I see. Interesting. I see. So as the seller, what are some things that you should ask for? The most important thing, obviously, is price. Um, 
and it's important for sellers to know what their company's worth. Uh, everybody wants to believe that their company's a great company, worth a ton. How do you go about figuring out the evaluation of your business? You should ideally, if you've got a good accountant, work with your accountant. If your accountant really doesn't get valuation, some of these smaller companies, they've got an accountant that really knows QuickBooks or something, but beyond that, they don't, they're not going to handle things like what's referred to as quality of earnings. So you'll want to work with a, a sophisticated accounting firm or a business valuation firm that can give you that information in advance and give you a sense of what you think a buyer would pay. Uh, because you want to go in with a sense of reality, right? If, if you go in thinking my company's worth $30 million, uh, and a buyer tells you after they've kicked the tires it's really only worth 15 you don't want to have invested a bunch of time, effort, and money going down the path of a deal only to pull out because it's not going to get you what you thought. That makes sense. How do you measure what your marketing is worth? I mean, I, it's a hard one for me because you're really getting more into the, the valuation side, which is not what I do. Uh, and of course, with, with a pool business, it's not really recurring customer business. You're not selling DVDs where a person's going to keep coming back to buy more DVDs. Once someone's bought a pool, unless they go buy a new home or something, they're probably not coming back to you for another pool. So um, I, I, w- I would think kind of your, your back order uh, duration would, would, would be a big factor on how successfully you, I mean, if you're, if you're sort of doing a subsistence amount of advertising where you're just bringing in enough work to keep your employees employed, but you have no visibility of say 90 days out, probably not that great. If, you've, if you're out there, you're regularly marketing, selling, and you've got a one-year or 18-month or 24-month back order, you know, backlog, that, that's going to be a, a good sign. But generally, businesses are bought and sold, or I should say valued, uh, based on their EBITDA. So what is EBITDA? Uh, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So it, it's, it's kind of a funny concept when you think about it because it's what are your earnings, so what are your profits, uh, but let's let's exclude all these things that would actually cut into your profits, right? So it's not really truly your profitability, but but companies that buy other companies or private equity firms, they typically measure companies based on on a mult, what's called a multiple of EBITDA, uh, meaning they'll pay anywhere from four to ten times what a company's annual EBITDA is. Um, and you know that's general. That's then what's referred to typically as the enterprise value of the company, and that's you know where your purchase price is going to come from. Hmm. Let me let me just jump in just a little bit on the, on the marketing side. Um, I I do think it does weigh a little bit as it relates to having a well-run business to make sure that you're you're doing a good job on the marketing side and you've got a good reputation out there. I think that's where you can kind of inch up the value in your business, and I definitely it's, it's based on your. EBITDA, but 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 it's all about how well you run your business. And I think the other very important thing is the staff that you have. Make sure that your key people are key because they're going to look for that in that business to make sure that if you get the owner gets hit by a bus tomorrow, that that business can can go on. So surrounding yourself by great people and, and that can run the business and running a, a well-run business with marketing, it's important. Again, it's, it doesn't weigh way up on, on the scale, but it, it's an important part of running a business. Or the, or the flip side of that is you have a company that's really well run, uh, but you know it's run by one individual, one key person, and which, by the way, is also the reason that these private equity firms often want to have these people stay with the company yeah. because you know, private equity firms they're, they're they're financial engineers, they're finance companies, they're not operators. 
So they need the people that have built these companies and made them successful to stick around at least for a some period of time to do that. But one of the concerns they will have is if they look at a company and they say, this is a great company, but they say, you know, using Buzz for an example, if Buzz gets hit by a bus to the day after closing, this company's toast because Buzz is the company. So one of the things they're looking for is depth of management, succession plan, you know, something that means that the company is more than just the founder. How do you demonstrate that? Like, how do you demonstrate that your key employees can run the company without you? Well, I mean, qualification of your management team, how long they've been with the company, a buyer will, will absolutely at the right time when concerns about confidentiality have passed, but they'll want to have discussions with, with members of the top management. They'll want to have a sense of, can number two step in and become number one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do I a lot of interviewing, I will tell you. Is they that do. right? Absolutely, they do. So how much did you learn about your business with Paddock when you were going through that transition of selling the business and they were interviewing some of your key people? I was so close to it. I'm such a hands-on guy. I didn't learn much about it. I knew what each one, the skill set was and what they could bring to the table and what they did bring to the table. So it wasn't really a learning, that people wasn't a learning curve for me. What was a learning curve for me on the Paddock deal, and I learned so much in between the Paddock and the other transactions I've done, is you, you have to be prepared for a sale. You just, you know, other than getting lucky and someone knocking on the door, but usually it's a process, and I, I know you're gonna talk about it a little bit, but maybe two or three years of getting your business prepared for sale and doing the right things, because it'll help your valuation big time when you do that. And I think that's what I think I learned most about. If I were to rewind things, I might have said, mm, let's wait a couple of years, let's do this consult with people like Josh that you've talked to and Garth and how do I get my business so I can get the greatest value for it? It happened so quickly at that time. I think that's the biggest thing that I learned. I didn't learn too much about the people. I knew them so close. It was such a a tight family knit business that I I knew each one really well and what they could do and not do. I want to go back really quick. I have in the first two scenarios, you said the asset purchase, right? Can you break those down one more time? Sure. The two, because I just want to make so, sure I got it. Yeah, think of it this way. In an asset purchase, your company is the seller. Okay. It's selling its assets. In the stock, trucks, everything. Everything. Okay. File cabinets, trucks, concrete supply, building if contracts, you all the stuff, all the assets that are used to operate the business. Okay. Uh, and typically the buyer will assume, and by the way, that includes like your accounts receivable. Okay. And the flip side is that the buyer will assume your accounts payable. Okay. Okay. Now, in an asset purchase deal, the the seller keeps their cash and their bank accounts typically, so that's not going. Um, so again, think of in, a, in an asset sale, the company itself is the seller. In a stock sale, again, equity sale, the owners of the company are the sellers, and they're actually selling the company. So everything that's in the company just automatically goes with the company. Bank accounts, same thing. I mean, yeah. buildings, trucks, everything. Yeah. Now. You know, one thing up, maybe this might get a little technical, but a typical, uh, there are some adjustments to the purchase price in a deal. Uh, and, and cash and debt, you'll often hear the term, it's going to be a cash-free, debt-free deal. And what that means is, and it's more pertinent in a, in a stock purchase deal is, let's just say the purchase price is $20 bucks. okay? Uh, if the company on the closing date has a million dollars of debt, well, the buyer... They've just bought a million bucks of debt. They don't really want that, right? So they say, well, we're going to reduce the purchase price by a million bucks. Or we're going to take a million of bucks, and instead of paying you that 20, we're going to pay you 19, and we're going to pay a million to the bank to pay off that debt. Okay? 
So that's call that the downside. But the upside is suppose you have $2 million of cash in your bank account. Well, you're going to get paid dollar for dollar for that cash. So now instead, you know, you started at 20 and you had a million dollars of debt. So that brought you into 19, but you got 2 million of cash. So you're up to 21 now. I see. Okay. So in a, in an asset purchase deal, you don't typically have to deal with that because the buyer is not going to assume your debt and they're not going to take your cash. So it ends up being a wash. Either way, you get effectively the same result. I see. But yeah. Okay. Just wanted to make sure I understood that. It's a lot of moving parts. There are. Garth, aside from uh, uh, taxes, what, what is a is, is there a better way for someone to look to sell a business? Is it best asset tax aside from it, asset or stock? I know that what we did at ours, but sure. what 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 do you, what, what, what how do you uh, consult someone and tell them that hey, this is the best route to go down. Sure. Well, if you're on this, you know, I, I, there are reasons to do it on the on to choose one approach, or the other on the buy side. But I'll stick with yeah. the sell side because I think that's what we're talking about. So, I'd say there are there, there's a, there's a number of things. One is simplicity. Simply, stock sales are simple. You, when it's time to sell the company, you sign a piece of paper that says I'm assigning over my stock or my LLC membership, and here you go. I don't have to convey the real property if company owns real property. I don't have to sign over vehicle titles. I don't have to terminate my employees and have you, the buyer, hire them. All that stuff just comes with the company. So simplicity is a big standpoint. Um, one of the areas that can be of concern is if a company has you know, key permits or key contracts. And in either of those cases, under the terms, it says you need the consent of you know, the permit issuer or you need the consent of client number one in order to assign this contract, this permit, You've got to go and get that consent as a condition of being able to get that deal done. Uh, but with a change of ownership, most of the time, there is not a consent requirement. So again, from the simplicity angle, sometimes it's just easier to do a stock deal or an equity sale than, than an asset sale. Hmm. Um, the, the second one is, and, and you touched on it, is tax. And, and tax will absolutely drive deal structure. There are tax advantages and disadvantages of each side. It really depends on what type of entity the company that you're selling is. So if you're a C corporation or, or <coughs> excuse me, an S corporation or an LLC you know, partnership, that's gonna have an effect on how the proceeds that you collect gets distributed. So for example, a C corporation, which is your traditional good old fashioned corporation, uh, if it is the seller in an asset sale, it will get taxed on its profits, on its gain from the sale. And then when it wants to distribute those net proceeds up to the shareholders, there'll be a second tax on, on the dividend. Same way it works if the company's earning profits during the year, two levels of taxation. In an equity sale, the sellers are directly selling their ownership interest. So they will pay income tax on their gain, but that's only a one-time tax. Now, sometimes the combined double tax isn't that far off of a single tax. So it depends on tax rates, structure. Um, There's certain cases where the buyer will want to, and I, again, this will get way too technical probably for this discussion. They'll be willing to do a stock purchase, an equity purchase, provided that they can make certain elections that allow them to treat it as an asset purchase, mm. which gives them a step up in basis for added depreciation and some other advantages. So there's, there's Different ways to skin that cat, but again, it's, that's why it's, it's very important that the seller is working with a knowledgeable accountant to help them understand that. I was going to say, it sounds like you really got to have the right, the right guy. Absolutely. Yeah, you do. 
Are you allowed to change the business structure? Anything like that is going to be disclosed to the buyer. And usually, again, if, if the company owner, the seller is getting good advice, they're not going to do anything without putting the right amount of thought into it. Included in terms of A, it's not going to have any adverse tax consequences on the seller themselves. And B, it's not going to do something that's going to make the company less palatable to the buyer. But in fact, it's pretty common nowadays uh, in deals that I do where there will actually be some kind of a tax-related reorganization done as a preliminary step in getting the deal done. So yeah, just because your particular structure now is what it is doesn't mean you can't change it. With that said, there are certain um, things that a, a person on the sell side might want to do, but you have to do that with a certain amount of time in advance. So it's not something that can be left to a day before closing or even a month before closing. It may be something they need to start putting into place years before closing. Hmm. So who would uh, maybe make that suggestion? Would it be you or the accountant? Um, typically... Early on in that phase, it's, it's really more the account. So for instance, if, if the, let's say a seller is saying, look, this is a C corporation and I'm gonna get this tax hit, what can I do to reduce this? And that's what you work with the accountant. Another one may be, I'm a seller and whatever my deal structure is, I'm gonna make this big gain, which is gonna be taxable at my higher rate of tax. And I've got some kids I'd like to, channel some of this, you know, gain from some profit to, to start them off in life and they'll be taxed, but at a lower tax rate based on their income levels. How can I do that? And again, that's something that, you know, things like that can be done, but there needs to be some runway in advance to, to do that properly. How long does it usually take from negotiation to close on a deal? You know, I'd, I'd say on average, you're talking about three to four months. From oh, that's fast. It's, yeah, that's faster than well, I thought. Well, I mean, and it can take longer. I mean, it, you know, if, if you've got a motivated seller and a motivated buyer and, and good advisors on both sides of the deal, the advisors know how the process works and they'll kind of shepherd and, and sometimes push, <laughs> the, you know, the, the clients through. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's the process itself, um, you know, three to four would be, I wouldn't say, at least by my experience, not fast, but it would be, somewhat expedited you know you want to say five months on average that'd be about right i would think there'd be a ton of back and forth negotiations but well the way it works typically is is the first stage of the negotiation is the parties work out sort of a non-binding agreement sort of what's commonly called a letter of intent Uh, and that's going to set out the basic terms which is going to say we're going to do a stock deal the purchase price is going to be x uh we're going to expect the seller to retain 20% ownership and he's going to get an employment agreement. We want him there for at least three years and, and you'll have, you know, the stuff. Uh, and then the buyer will start. And that, and that, by the way, that agreement will have been made with the buyer having been given some amount of information to help them understand the company and what it's worth. But then they're really going to drill down and do their due diligence. Uh, and then during that process is when you know, the lawyers typically get in, more involved and are actively negotiating the purchase agreement and a bunch of the other ancillary agreements. And that process, uh, you know, is runs often right up through to the closing. So it, it's a lengthy process. And, you know, as, as Buzz can attest, 
you know, for the owners, the operators of the business, they're busy running their business. So they've got all of the pressure of the work of running their business on top of all the work that goes into negotiating and, and papering up these deals. It, Justin, I, I just want to say one thing you, you brought up, and, and Garth brought it up a couple of times too. I think that one of the best advice we can give or I can give to someone that's looking to sell their business is surround yourself by professionals. Too many times people don't do that. They try to do it themselves or they try to just get the accountant within their business. Get yourself a Cracker Jack M&A lawyer. Get yourself a Cracker Jack. What do we call uh, Josh? A financial advisor? Oh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a CPA at accountant. CPA. Yeah. And then within his firm, he's got a, um, who does the selling of the businesses. Uh, well, well, they have uh, M&A. They have different terms. M&A advisor, investment banker. Investment bankers. No, in, yeah. I, 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 I just stress it among uh, the people that I've talked to, and I've helped three or four of them too. At different at different stages, make sure you surround yourself by the right people. It it'll save you uh, time, effort, and not only that, it will it it'll maximize your value to, to the business. But too, too many too many try to do it themselves, and it or using people that aren't qualified to do it. Mm, big mistake. Seems like you just get screwed. Well, you, know? you could you can, or you're not going to get to maximize the value for out, out of your business, or you're going to be. I mean, how many times we go round and round with the Paramount deal? <laughs> I mean, on the phone many, many times, and it's just they just, and, and, and it's a good buffer. By the way, the owner let let them let let Garth, let Garth be the bad guy, or let Garth do that, and I can kind of stay because it's an emotional process too. I will say something else. It's very for me anyway. I will tell you both both sales. It's an emotional time. I mean, from the paddock side, you know, it was my dad started the business in 1958, so it was the emotional having that part of it. Am I doing the right thing for my my dad? What he did, and of course with the Paramount. That I started, and you know, it was my baby, and it's it's, it's a tough. So, got to get through that emotional side too. Yeah, I can remember on the Paramount. Gosh, when we were just sort of days from closing and having a conversation with you, and you were having some deep second thoughts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> said, yeah. But, but sure was. But if I can just add on the advisor kind of comment, um, you know, and I'm not saying this just as a pitch for me. I mean, people should pick whoever they want to pick with, but you absolutely want to have competent legal counsel, competent uh, accountants. I, I've been on a number of deals, for instance, when I'm on the buy side, so I'm representing a buyer, and the legal counsel on the other side, who might be very pleasant to work with, but they're just so completely out of their element, and it's not my job to protect them or their client. Now, I'm not going to play sneaky games with them or anything, but... There will be things in the deal that I would ordinarily get pushback on and would be more heavily negotiated if they had good legal counsel on the other side. And they're they're not picking this stuff up. Wow. And um, you know, I was I have, I have a client, a serial acquire client I was just dealing with today, and, and we're starting up a new deal, not in the pool of business, but um we've done 15 deals together probably in the last three years. And he knows my system, and he knows I want to work with a good lawyer on the other side. I don't want to be dealing with someone who doesn't know what they're doing. It makes the job harder for everybody. So here's a buyer client who's telling the other side, go get yourself a good lawyer. Don't just use your solo family lawyer you've used for the last 15 years. That's not the person you want on on a project like this. Hmm. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we are going to ask, when should you engage an attorney to help prepare for a sale. This episode is brought to you by Lion Financial. Offer your customers the industry's best financing options and sell more pools. 
Lion Financial's low rates and long terms give your clients more buying power, making a pool affordable, one low monthly payment at a time. They offer unsecured loans with rates as low as 4.99% on approved credit, terms up to 30 years, options for credit scores 625 and up, and no 6% consulting fees like other finance sources charge your customers. Lion Financial pays builders directly, ensuring a payment on time and in full. Call 877-754-5966 or visit www.lionfinancial.net today. And now back to our episode. So when should you engage an attorney or a financial advisor or, I don't know, maybe you can list some other people because there's probably quite a few sure. individuals that are um, that help with this deal. Yeah, I mean, the, the three main ones, <clears throat> which we've already talked a little bit, are, there's your qualified accountant, qualified attorney, and then an M&A advisor or investment banker. There's different terms we use for those. And I'll come back to that third one. There, That one may or may not be necessary depending on the circumstances. But uh, very early on, once you're thinking you're, you're going to go down a sale path, you want to be working with a good accountant, uh, A, like I said earlier, who's going to help you get an understanding of what the value of your business is. B, is going to help you really clean up your financial statements. Most Family-owned companies or smaller companies don't have audited financial statements. Most don't even have what's called reviewed financial statements, which are one sort of step below an audit, but still have been sampled and looked at by, by an accounting firm. A lot of businesses uh, just operate on something like QuickBooks or some version of that. And there's nothing wrong with that. It, it, it works for the business. But when it comes time to sell, a buyer uh, is really going to want to drill down into the company's financial statements. And they, they the financial statements have to be in a decent enough condition that uh, a, a buyer can make heads or tails of them at a bare minimum, but also you want the buyer to have confidence that the seller understands how to account for their business and their financial dealings. So um, you know, it, it's important to work with an accountant helping you make sure those are in proper order, uh, that they will be presentable. Uh, and then as well, the, that accountant will be advising, like we talked about, you know, is your company in the current structure right now? Are there things that can be done uh, you know, to, to tee up the company uh, for a sale. Uh, in, in terms of working with legal counsel, uh, the earlier the better. The uh, you know, one of the issues I've seen is we talked you know a few minutes ago about you know, a letter of intent as an initial stage in a negotiation, which again it's a non-binding document, but it does set out sort of what the parties have agreed in principle as to what the deal terms are going to be. And too often, more than to my liking a client or a new client will come to me saying, hey, I've got a signed letter of intent. Let's start working on the deal. And I'll look at that letter of intent and I'll go, ugh, I wish I, you really hadn't agreed to that particular term. Or what does this term mean? And the client goes, well, I don't really know. I figured we'd just sort that out when it's time. <laughs> and so while there is the opportunity to go back to the buyer and say, you know, I didn't consult with my lawyer before I signed this and now my lawyer has pointed out this or that. So we need to make some changes. It's a non-binding document, but more times than not, the buyer's going to go, hey, you're trying to retrade. Come on. We had a deal. And it becomes this sort of uphill battle. It can set a negative tone for the beginning of the, of the real work. So certainly before a letter of intent is signed, you should be working with a lawyer to help you through that. And there may be other things in advance, like helping you know, a lawyer helping you get a proper confidentiality agreement in order. Uh, if you're going to be lift, lifting your dress, you know, for lack of a better term, to you know, show the insides of your company and who your customers are and your financial information, you want to make sure a buyer is, 
is bound under a proper confidentiality agreement. This might be thinking too much, but is there a good time of year to start this process or have a goal of when you want it to end? Because I'm just thinking about like talking to the accountant and taxes and all these things. You probably don't want to start this process like either in the middle of it or if it's going to fall in the middle of some of those things. I mean, is there a good time? It's a really good question. There, There are two main things you want to be concerned about. One of them you just talked about is if you are going to be needing the account to do a lot of work for you and you're in the springtime during tax season, you may or may not have a fully engaged accountant. That accountant might be a great person, but they're just up to their eyeballs and everybody needing them that time of year. Uh, the other one is uh, deals sometimes are structured to close at a certain time, year end, for instance, calendar year end or a company's fiscal year end. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's just as simple as, hey, we just want to have a clean cutoff. It's a good time to wrap up our ownership of the business. Other times there may be a reason. So, for instance, if you think back, there's been the last you know, 10 years or so, there's been times when people either believe there was going to be a tax increase coming in, uh, whether or not it actually did, or one did come in. And so there's this push to, we've got to get this deal closed by December 31, because if we close on January 2nd, I'm now paying a higher rate of income tax on my sale proceeds, right? So... Well, I, I don't know if I'd say there's a, a good or bad time to do it. It's just that if you are going to be in one of these critical timing, you want to be planning far enough out in advance that you're not going to be running up against a deadline that you can't control or running up against having a service provider that's really busy and they can't give you the time you need. And I'm assuming it's probably not wise to have a separate accountant for that. You probably want the person that's been on your uh your accountant, if you do have one, to be helping you with that? It really depends. And again, it goes to the competency uh, of the of the accountant. Uh, I mean, I think most service professionals, we play nicely with each other. And, uh, uh, you know, you, if you bring in an outside accountant who really is a more sophisticated person than your normal bookkeeper accountant, they'll they'll play nicely with your bookkeeper accountant. They'll, they'll, they'll help each other. That's what we do. Likewise, I've done a number of deals where I will work with the company's family attorney or the, you know, the attorney they've used on small, because they know where to find stuff. They know the history of a particular agreement that was entered into or you know, these types of things. Um, so again, it just comes down to getting the right people who are the right fit for, for the work. Might have to break the news to your mom. She can't be the accountant for the deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, she'll probably be needed because if she understands it, and believe me, your accountant will be part, part yeah. of the deal. Yeah. Hey, but as long as you're talking about financial, yeah. uh, Garth, what does what a buyer normally look at? Three years back? Do they go back three years in a company? And then I know they look forward to see what it looks like. What, could, yeah. Talk about that just a little bit. What, what, what should they expect? At, at a minimum, the most recently completed two fiscal years. And then any sort of year-to-date period or you know, quarter-ended. So right now, for instance, we're, we're now pushing into June. Uh, a buyer would typically want to see, say, 2021, 2022, and the first, at least the first quarter of 2023, if not, you know, four or five months, uh, they might want to look back further. Uh, It's a function of what's available. They don't want to put the seller through unnecessary work. Uh, If the seller, if they're, you know, using this example, if if we're in 2023 and the company's got fairly decent 2021 and 2022 financial statements, but their, their 2020s weren't so good, they may or may not ask the seller to go back and kind of redo those. It just depends. But, you know, I'd say two to three year look back plus current 
current year financial information. And what about going forward? What do they do? They, what do they like to see? Some kind of projections of what it looks like the year out, two years out. Yeah, they they do that stuff. Of course, is it's, there's no typically any kind of guarantees given by the sellers on that stuff. But yeah, they certainly want to have an understanding of what they're buying. Um, Future looks real good. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> double last year. Yeah, I mean, and that's where things like backlog, you know, really yeah. really play in because uh, you know I, I've represented buyers where you know they, they've they've looked at a company and the numbers look great the prior year or even the year before that, but you know that backlog has dwindled. Recession's kicking in, interest rates have gone up, what have you. And you know, the buyer's not buying what the company did in the past. They're buying the future revenue, future profitability. And so they need to have a good amount of comfort that what is that has take. been happening is going to continue. Hmm. From a legal standpoint, what, what makes a business worth less? Like what are things that you would see that might hurt? I'll get away from the economics for starters. So things like if, if it looks like customers are shrinking, that, that, that's not, not so much the legal stuff. Um, risk is a big factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, if a company has any kind of a record of environmental issues, um, including existing environmental issues, uh, any kind of litigation or claims, and that could be anything from, I mean, not, not your kind of ordinary course, annoyed customer that's filed a complaint with the ROC or something like that, but real litigation, um, and that could be anything from external forces to internal you know, sexual harassment claims, uh, discrimination claims, um, you know, things things that indicate that the company's not really being operated professionally and, and with sort of a view to, to mm-hmm. you know, just being a good corporate citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, tax, which is in some ways not a legal issue, but in some ways is because depending on the the nature of the business, even if it's an asset sale transaction where theoretically the tax liability remains with the seller, uh, you know, there's concerns potentially for successor liability or, or even the buyer just somehow getting wrapped up in a, in, a, in a tax claim they don't want to be a part of. So, you know, the cleaner the business, the better. You know, the term we often use is, you know, how much hair is on the deal. Mm. And and every, every deal is going to have a little bit of hair. There's going to be some issue with it angry customer or a problem employee or something. So a buyer isn't expecting business to be clean, but but the more they have in terms of sort of legal risks, uh, either existing things that have transpired or contingencies, things that we're aware of, nothing's happened yet, but something may arise, that's, that's going to be stuff that's going to cause the buyer concern. And they'll look for that, huh? They go back and check. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. The, the buyer due diligence process, they will kick over every stone. They will they'll drive the seller a little nuts. Um, and, and it's one of those things that sellers have to be prepared for. The, the lawyers and the accountants, the professional advisors can, can take a good amount of that load off and, and help kind of uh, get, get a hold of that information from the sellers and, and, and organize it and present it to the buyer. But that's a real in-depth process. And you know, one of the things, this goes more on the financial side on the due diligence, is uh, you know, the, in these letters of intent, a buyer will say, well, we think the company's worth X. And so our offer is based on the assumption it's worth X. And that assumes that the company is going to have X amount of revenues this year, X amount of EBITDA, um, and, the, and they will do what's referred to this quality of earnings review based on the historic financial information you've provided. And it's not uncommon for a buyer to come back and say, We've really drilled down into your financial statements, and we don't really think you're worth X. We now think you're worth X minus five. 
uh, and that can be uh, obviously frustrating for a seller who feels like, wait a minute, we had a deal, now you're, you're, you're gaming me. Right? right. And it can certainly be perceived that way, um, but that's why you know, I said earlier why it's important for the seller to know in advance with qualified professional advisors what their company's worth, but to also be prepared for that somewhat. Uh, I always sort of explain it a bit like uh, when you're going through that dating process with a, with a buyer, you know, they're, they're going to say all the sweet things to you and want to take you to the prom. And, 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 but then once you're, you know, once you're maybe not married but engaged, you know, then they start, the true colors sort of come through, right? So <laughs> yeah. it's something you got to be prepared for. Well, bottom line is that's kind of what they, they're going to do. They're going to yeah. look for it. They turn every rock to reduce that yeah. sale price, to reduce the EBITDA. That, that's what they're there to do. Yeah. Right. So they're going to, again, it's going to look pretty upfront. And then if that's why you get, get things as clean as you possibly can before you go to market. So if they, if they turn, turn up a stone, there's nothing there. Because they're going to look for ways to reduce it. End of story. That's yeah. And, and, and that's not even like they're, I'm not saying they're trying to do that. They're not trying to play games. But they have to be mindful of, yeah. you know, they, they have to be good, good sort of fiduciaries for their own clients, their own investors. And so they don't want to buy a company only to discover that the company's not what they thought it was. So they, they, they have to do that. Sure. Um, and, and then the other thing is, you know, as I said earlier, with private equity buyers who make up the substantial majority of buyers nowadays, they are what's referred to as financial buyers versus, say, a strategic buyer. So if you have a company that comes along and wants to buy you and bring you into their, their view is, I'm buying you forever. I have no intention of selling you, let's say, in five years. A strategic buyer. A strategic buyer. Uh, a financial buyer, a private equity buyer, as I said, are, are buying you with a view to tripling your value and selling you in about five years. You know, that old real estate adage about you know, how much you make on the property, it's not what you sell it for, it's what you buy it for. Same kind of concept here, at least in part, is the lower they can get that purchase price, the faster they'll be able to get to a hitting a triple uh, you know, in five years. So they'll look for any sort of reasonable opportunity to reduce that price. Speaking of that, are most of the sales that you've been involved in with the pool-related businesses, has that been strategic buyers or is that more investors oh it's nowadays in just about every business it's private equity buyers why is that what changed that free money federal oh. government was giving free money out for the last 20 years so so the 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 way private equity works is they have a core group of investors but most of the purchase price that they pay for your business they borrow from the banks hmm. so that you've heard the term going back to the 80s of a leveraged buyout it's a leveraged buyout so they, let's just use an example of a, say a $30 million acquisition, they might put up 10 million of their own money, or maybe eight. The rest of it is borrowed money. So, um, which is another factor, by the way, why they, if they're borrowing this money and they're paying interest on that money, they, they want to spend as little of that money as possible, mm -hmm. which is another factor as to why they're, um, you know, gonna try and, I don't wanna say grind you on the price, but try and get that price down. But, but to your question, there are just so many private equity firms out there now, thousands of them. Uh, and they, they were fueled, you know, right or wrong, good or bad. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other on that, by this very cheap money that the Fed had allowed to go out there for you know, the better part of 20 years, which of course is now changing, right? right? Interest rates are going up. So 
you know, private equity firms are uh, slowing down. They're being more selective in who they buy. Uh, whereas a year ago, they were offering multiples in the area of 10 or 11 times EBITDA for companies. Now they're coming back down to earth. Wow. Yeah. Well, well, plus two in our industry anyway, Justin, Greg, there's not too many strategic buyers that can that have the cash and reserves to buy companies. So that that's why you, you, it's different than a manufacturer. Big manufacturers have lots of resources to do that. In our industry, there's just not a lot of that. Out there. I know there's one or two going on out there that are strictly, strictly uh, uh, strategic buyers, but very, very few in our industry. It's, yeah. al- it's always been private equity money or, or venture capitalists. This episode is brought to you by Jandy Speedset Variable Speed Pump Controller. Never struggle or get slowed down programming a pump again. The Jandy Speedset Controller sets a new standard for variable speed pump user interfaces, enabling quick setup, programming, and maintenance, making it the user interface you've always wanted. Featuring a large, easy-to-read LCD display and exclusive flywheel navigation, you can quickly and intuitively set up to 10 schedules and 8 additional time runs with ease. But Speedset doesn't just make setting up the pump a breeze. It makes pool maintenance simple as well with a dedicated clean timer, ideal for circulating chemicals or vacuuming the pool, and a one-touch stop button with on-the-fly time stop customization as well as local automation bypass. Look, programming a pump has never been so fast and easy. For fast, simple, full-feature control, drop in a Jandy. For more information, you can visit Jandy's website or contact your Fluidra sales rep. All right, now back to the episode. What about going back to, from a legal standpoint, what undermines your business's value? Because in our business, there's a lot of visa workers and um, a lot of employee record stuff that may not be on the up and up. What? How does that play into it? Well, it'll certainly come out in due diligence. And again, you know, buyers, they know to expect a certain amount, you know, as I said, of hair. Right. Okay, so they're not expecting to find that every employee file is going to be perfect. They're not expecting to find that there's not going to be any disciplinary issues. Um, you know, one area that, that can be of concern is uh, immigration compliance, mm-hmm. depending on certain industries, especially um, where, you know, if you recall a few years back that, that uh, you know, ICE was really cracking down on these food processing plants, I mean, just because they hired a lot of undocumented workers. And so food companies we're having to become much more careful about that because when those plants get raided, they get shut down. Right. Right. And uh, so depending on the type of industry, um, it can be a greater or, or, or lesser risk. But generally speaking, a buyer wants to see that, that a seller has used reasonable efforts to determine that their workers are, are, are legal. Um, there's no guarantees there. I mean, even, even a, an employer that does you know, reasonable efforts they, they, they can't give you a guarantee. Um, right. But we have things like, you know, Forms I-9, E-Verify, Social Security number checks, things like that. So, you know, if, if you're doing the right stuff as part of that, then buyers will be reasonably forgiving in that area. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, I, as some main areas is, I mean, you're going to get, if you're a seller, one of the things you're going to get early on in the process is a lengthy list of please provide the following documents and information. And that list is going to be anywhere from you know, four or five pages to 25 pages. Um, but the main things they're going to want are uh, asset lists. Not every single hammer and nail you have, but they're going to want to, you know, vehicle lists, heavy equipment, uh, lists of property, real property that you own or lease, 
copies of material contracts. So that would include things like real property leases, any sort of you know, material sort of umbrella supplier agreements. Not every PO for, for you know, concrete or or whatever, but um, if you are a pool builder and you have sort of a standard customer contract, they're not going to ask you for every single customer contract, but they'll ask for a sampling. Uh, or they may say, hey, we want to see your contracts for any of them that have a residual cost or value to you of at least X. Um, employee records are, you got to be careful about because there's legal confidentiality restrictions on what you can disclose, but they may want to see what employee benefit plans you have. Do you have a 401k plan? Do you have a profit sharing plan? Do you have bonus plans? These types of things, especially in, a, in an equity or stock purchase deal where when the buyer buys the company, all that stuff's going to come over. Um, they'll want to understand your marketing program, discounts, rebates. What are you offering? You know, what are your warranties? That's, that's a big one in the pool business, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you buy a company and you buy these 10 or 25 year warranties. That's a lot of liability the buyer is potentially assuming. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the company documentation, financial statements we've talked about. Um, Customer if, list, maybe. Yeah. And that's one that sellers can be obviously a little uh, nervous about. Uh, it's not uncommon for a seller to say, I'll give you that, but not, not right up front. Mm -hmm. Let's get further down the road in the, in the negotiation process. Let's get more confident that we have a deal that is going to close. Um, and the other thing, of course, is they're not going to want the buyer picking up the phone and calling those customers, even if they have given a list or a partial list. So you'll, you'll put restrictions on that, uh, saying you, know, we, we, you can have some customer calls and visits, but at a point in time when we agree, and, and by the way, we're going we're gonna to possibly be on those calls. Obviously, a lot of financial and, and tax information. If you if it's a if it's an equity purchase deal, they're really going to want to drill down on the company's tax history. You want to see copies of filed tax returns, audit reports, anything like that. Um, but I think you know, that's a lot of the main stuff. So, what are some of the main things a buyer will hone in on? Uh, well, financial statements is a key thing. Um, material contracts. Um, employees um in terms of you know what's the what's the not just how many employees do you have but what are you paying them uh you know one of the things that you know you'll be asked to produce is what sometimes referred to as a census which is for every employee give us their start date their title their base wage or salary any kind of contingent or bonus compensation that they're entitled to are they on leave are they uh are they you know what what category are they in are they exempt or non-exempt for overtime things like that that, that, that's a key thing, especially in some states like California, where there's just so many ways to get in trouble uh, with employment law compliance. Buyers will be particularly cautious in that area. Have you ever had clients that want to talk to the employees on the before buy, on the buy side or on the sell side? Like, say, oh, we're going to buy your business. Yes, yeah. I would ask you, can I talk to some of your employees? Sure, it, it's very similar to what I was just saying about. I uh, wanted to talk to customers or key customers. And the answer typically is not now. Um, and, and typically buyers only want to talk to management. They're not, they're not interested in the, in the guys out in the field. Um, yeah, it's possible they might want to do a quick sampling just to get a sense of what's the mood or the employees happy or not. I hate this place. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they, they, they will, let's say, want to talk to the CFO or the HR director or VP sales or something. Yeah. Um, you want to talk to Toby from the office? That's right. <laughs> you want to talk to Dwight? Yeah. There's an episode all on that. I'm going to share a clip of it. It's awesome. Um, but yeah, that's something yeah. that the seller will want to control. 
I mean, one of the things that's really important early on in the process for the seller is, is when they're figuring out, okay, we're going to go down this path is who do we tell within the company? Because the more people you include in that circle, the greater chance the word's going to leak. And that can become a real, you know, it's going to affect employee morale, create insecurity. Employees may, be think, employees may be thinking, well, I may get laid off, so I might as well start looking for a job now. And next thing you know, you're losing a chunk of your workforce because people don't want to stick around and wait to see if they're going to have a job six months down the road. So you really want to have a small deal team and you really want to impress on them how important it is that word does not get out. And it's such a gamble because say you tell some employees or things like that and the deal doesn't go through. Now everybody knows you're trying to sell your business, but you might not be able to for whatever reason. Yep. So yeah, it's, it, it's a challenge. I think most companies from what I can see successfully navigate that. Um, but it's, um, you know, th- there's things you can do. Like for instance, when your lawyers and your accountants show up at your office, tell them they'll wear a suit. <laughs> Employees tend to pick up on strangers showing up wearing suits. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's something that you got to be careful about. And um, it's got to be a long three or five months, like just knowing that you know your vacation, your permanent vacation is about to start. You know, because <laughs> you're getting like bought out or whatever. It's got to be a long period of time, or feel like a long stretch. I want to let Buzz speak to that. He's gone through it. I feel like Buzz is an anomaly. He's probably like, no, man, every day one, every day. <laughs> well, you remember that from that podcast, don't you? Oh, of course. That's yeah. Justin chants it every, every day, every morning. You know, so I, does Mike. I, yeah, that, it, was a, it was, I think it was for us, it was about a six-month project um, from beginning to end when, we, when they first make, made contact. And for me, I had just told one person in the company, it was um, my CFO, and it was just he and I for the longest time, longest time. And it got down to where it was looking really good. Then I, then I just brought in just the key personnel, the GM and the national sales manager. And yeah, I think that was it at that time. But it was a, it was a, it's a, it's a, I, I'll speak for me. You know, it's a, it was a very emotional time. It wasn't about the vacation because I wasn't going on vacation. I was going to stick with them, which I did for a couple of years at that time. But uh, just getting through it. And then, and then you know, you're, think about your customers and the relationships that you build. And I'm all, all about relationships. And in and out of the business, you know, for the employees, I was, gosh, am I doing the right thing? I, I, I don't want to let them down. I don't want to think that I'm turning my back on them. So it, it, I guess it all depends where you are in your life and where you are in your, it, 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 you know, in your mindset about that. But for me, it was emotional. And, but, you know, we got through it and kept it a very tight-knit group and, and uh, got, got the deal done. How did you get everybody on board? Because you had partners and, and everything else, right? I mean, I imagine there's some process where you got to go tell everybody, right, and make sure everybody's beating the same drum. Yeah, you talk about stockholders or shareholders or part- partners. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's a really important thing. And I'm going to let Garth talk about that a little bit too. But that's really important before you even start the process to make sure. And and, and I did I, when I first got the, got the call or the meeting with the particular buyer. I, I Before I did anything at all, I, I huddled a particular shareholders or stockholders of the company. So this is what I'm thinking, this is where it's going and making sure is there was on board as possible because all it does is just takes one to, to blow the deal up. So you're going to want to make sure before you go down the path of you know, getting your business sold, if you have shareholders, stockholders, or you know, business partners, that everyone's singing on the same page because it can, it can cause you problems otherwise. If you catch it early enough in the game, 
you can set up your operating agreement in such a way, right, that you can force a sale or make selling with partners a little bit easier if you want to be the deciding member, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, operating agreements, we use that term for LLCs, limited liability companies, shareholder agreements for the more traditional corporation, but they typically would contain similar terms. And you have that in, in scenarios where you have multiple shareholders. So if obviously, if you own your own company 100% or it's husband and wife, something like that, it's less of a concern. But if you, let's say you've got five or six shareholders and you, you, you have this provision that's referred to as a drag along provision, which basically says, hey, if a majority of the owners or the owners representing a majority of the outstanding stock of the company, 51%, let's say, want to sell and they've got a buyer, then they can force all the other owners to sell on those same terms. Uh, you can't have one person, a 10% shareholder, let's say, holding up the show because they don't want to sell. And so, yeah, you can have these these provisions in your operating agreement or your shareholder agreement uh, that would, would cover you that way. You ever get to the finish line and have a partner or a shareholder blow up the deal? Uh, I've, I've had scenarios where uh, the deal could have been blown up. Really? Uh, and, and, and typically what I'll tell people is those provisions in your agreements are good to have, but you don't really want to have to use them because there's always the chance that even if you exercise those rights, that person, the holdout, is going to find some other way to mess up the deal. Uh, and, and, and if nothing else, the buyer doesn't necessarily want to get dragged into potential litigation or they don't want to be waiting for three months for this issue to resolve itself and, and delay the, the deal. So yes, you can absolutely paper up and have, have terms that will, will give you the tools if you need them. But the far better protection is, is once you've decided you want to go down the path of a sale is make sure that your owners, your co-owners are on board. And that may or may not be getting a green light right out of the gate. It may be just getting a, a sense of, yes, we, we think it's a good time now, subject to where you come back to us on with a purchase price or whatever the terms are. But, but sure, conceptually, we're on board. What are some terms you can put into the deal to kind of incentivize the key employees to stay? Or what, what do most people do? Sure. The, the most common one is what's referred to as a retention bonus. And uh, you know, a common example would say, okay, Buzz, you're, you know, you're our VP sales. You're an important guy. Uh, so uh, you stick around for at least six months after closing. You remain continuously employed and we'll pay you X. And if you stay through 12 months, we're going to pay you Y. And if you stay through two years, we're going to pay you Z. Hmm. And you're just, you know, you're, you're paying them to stick around. Um, that's, that, that's the most common approach. Hmm. Garth, you mentioned seeking out advice from attorneys and from accountants. Is there anyone else you should reach out to? You know, it, you don't have this in every deal, but uh, a number of companies will, if they're on the sell side, will work with uh there's different terms. M&A advisor is the most sort of generic, but people hear about investment bankers, uh, <coughs> excuse me, or business brokers. Um, these are people that specialize in representing sellers, typically sellers, uh, in negotiating uh, a sale transaction, but not just sort of helping to negotiate because that large part is, is a lawyer's job, but also helping them find the right buyer. 
And uh, uh, in a hot market, and what I mean by that is when you've got a lot of buyers out there chasing deals, uh, you could be in a situation where you are a seller and you've got 5, 10, 15 different prospective buyers knocking on your door. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot to manage uh, when you're trying to run your business. Uh, it also affects uh, what your price is going to be. Um, it's, you know, we talked earlier about a seller might have a sense of overvalue of what they think their business is worth, but it could go the other way. A seller might think, I think I can get X for my business, when in fact, working with a with a M&A advisor, they might turn out you can get you can get more because they can get out there, they can help beat the bushes, they can help screen buyers. They have a good sense of what the market is for that type of business, and uh, they can help you know, the seller actually get a better deal. Um, the sellers are sometimes of the mindset, I don't need that, or I don't want to pay a big fee to some one of these guys. Uh, but you know, if you get the right people for the right deal, usually their fee will be taken care of by the extra money that they, they get you. So in your article, you'd mentioned a uh, market intermediary. Yeah. Is that, is that? Yeah, that's what we're talking about. I mean, if you think of the, at the sort of the top of the food chain, you know, you're talking about sort of like a Goldman Sachs and, you know, or, or you know, one of these big investment banks, Raymond James. And, and then you've got at the very bottom of the heap are you know, business brokers who I personally don't have a lot of love or respect for. I think most of them are, just not very good. They don't bring a lot of value. They're more interested in getting a deal done really fast mm-hmm. uh, so they can get a fee and move on to the next client. They're, they're, there's one or two firms that aren't bad. but uh, And then you've got kind of what you know, these sort of middle market advisors. And, and, and you know, Buzz mentioned you know, Josh's firm has a division that, that does this separate and apart from the accounting side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the, and these are really good people, very smart people. And, and they will take a good chunk of work off of a seller's plate. Uh, now, there are times where um, a seller doesn't want it or need it. Uh, you know, circumstance may be where uh, a seller knows. In fact, I had this a year or two ago. Seller knew the buyer, trusted the buyer, had a relationship with the buyer, knew in fact that they, yeah, they probably could get a better price if they went out to the market, but they were quite content with wanting to work with that particular buyer. Uh, or it could be a situation where Buyer presents, you know, approaches a seller, and, and the offer that they're offering is just so good, you know, a high multiple of, of EBITDA. The seller says, "Hey, this is this is good enough." It feels pretty good. Yeah. Now, I mean, even then, I you know, I'll I'll try and say to them, "Well, look, if, if they're offering you this, how do you know there's not somebody else out there offering more?" So, it, you know, it's a call for the seller to make, but it's in the right circumstances, it, it can be a good one. What are the majority of buyers? You know, there's. Uh, people that want to invest and you have the private equity people, like what are all of them? Buyers for the most part in terms of uh, who is the party buying, they there are two main groups. There are strategic buyers, which are typically established businesses already in the industry uh, that want to add on to their business. And it's, and it's generally either operationally or economically, it makes more sense for them to add on through acquisition rather than organic growth. Uh, or you have uh, private equity firm buyers or financial buyers, and these are investors. Now, uh, you're not dealing with a whole bunch of little investors. You're, you're, you're talking about a sophisticated financial management firm that has collected investor money and is obtaining bank financing, and then they are going to buy your company. 
the biggest difference between a strategic buyer and a financial buyer or a private equity buyer is the strategic buyer typically is buying for the long term. Uh, the financial buyer, there's the private equity buyer, is buying with a view to seeing your business, liking it, recognizing that there is potential to improve the business economically so they can resell it in four to seven years, five on average. I typically just say five years uh, for discussion purposes. And their typical goal is to hit a triple, meaning they want to triple the value of the company in five years. Which one of those usually pays more? You know, I used to say that the strategic buyers did it. And the reason for that is they've got a little more vision, I would say, a little more long-term outlook. They're willing to pay a little more now because they see 5, 10, 15 years down the road, this will be creative to their value. Uh, financial buyers are looking to get the best price they can up front uh, because they want to triple that, what they're paying you, and, and get it back. And you know that old adage about with real estate, it's... It's not what you, you know, sell it for is how you make your money. It's, it's what you paid for it in the first place. And, and, and there's, there's certainly some uh, reality there in, in this context. It's interesting to think that, you know, especially in the pool space, that someone could come in like a private equity and try and triple it and sell it in five years because I wonder who they'd sell it to. Often other private equity firms. And that's just a cycle. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. I mean, one of the typical processes is they will buy one company as their first purchase. Not the first purchase they've ever done, but their first purchase, let's say, in, let's say in the pool business. Right. And then what they're gonna do is they're gonna go acquire two or three other pool companies, and they're gonna put them all together. So the first acquisition is referred to as a platform acquisition. And then each of these subsequent ones is a bolt-on. Those are the, the terms you often hear. And so to some extent, this this idea that the sum of the whole is greater than its parts. Uh, there's there's efficiencies. You know, you only need one CFO across four companies instead of four CFOs, so it'd be some payroll savings. Um, there's simply size. Uh, companies will attract a higher multiple in terms of purchase price based on how large they are. So a company that has five million in revenue and, and five hundred thousand dollars of EBITDA is not going to get as good a multiple as a company that has twenty million in revenue and 8 million at EBITDA, right? So the idea of kind of slapping all these companies together to, to juice the financial results is, is a factor. It makes sense. Yeah. Kind of hit the economy of scales too. Yep, yep absolutely. Is there, so I own a plumbing company in the trades. Do, you, do they, do you find that they're looking more at like the contractors, the generals, or are they interested in trades? I feel like I get a ton of calls, you know. Oh, trades are huge. Is it? Yeah, because that's recurring business, right? Right. Um, yeah, I've, I've sold a number of trades related, like non-pool trades related companies. And um, yeah, they're very popular. Really? Yeah. Yeah, cause, and I feel it's a light, that scenario, I hear about other friends who have sold or whatever, and that's what they're doing. They're buying you, the guy next door. Like there was a garage door guy that came into town, A1, and bought all of them. As a matter of mm -hmm. fact, I had bought doors from a company that he bought, called him a year later, it rang someone else's door, uh, someone else's phone. So seems like, yeah. Well, and, and you know, again, going back to this idea of how, you know, try to get triple a company's value in three years, you know, they're coming up with creative ways to do these things. So use the example of car washes. When we grew up, you went to a car wash when you wanted to get your car washed, but there was none of this, hey, pay a $40 a month subscription and you can come in as many times as you want, right? That was created from private equity firms buying up car washes and wanting to stabilize earnings 
maybe not so much here in, in Phoenix, but in climates where you had rainy weather and suddenly you had a week where no one was getting their car washed, huh. right? So they said, hey, well, let's, let's, let's create a stabilized system for revenue generation. People pay a subscription and we know we have this kind of this money coming in. So the, they, they will come up with things, they will do things. And that's actually, it's one thing that I, I know has been a frustration at times for, for clients of mine that have sold to private equity firms where in the early stages of the transaction, you know, the firm's coming in saying, we love your business. We think you're brilliant. You are the man or the woman, depending on who's running the company. Uh, we we want to buy you. you know, you've got the secret sauce. And then what do they do when the closing occurs? They start changing stuff. <laughs> and it, and it I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had clients come to me after just shaking their head. Does that happen, Buzz? <laughs> uh, yes, I can attest to that. <laughs> Um, but you know they, they are looking to improve revenues. They're looking to improve profitability, and none of that's nefarious. But they have systems. These are smart people. But yeah, they're going to change stuff up. Is there a minimum you think in revenue, in terms of revenue, that um, you know you shouldn't even try your company unless you're at X amount of revenue? Or is there a metric like that? You know, I used to say yeah, there is. But what's interesting is. And this is probably more before the, the, the latest rate hikes in the last year or so. But private equity firms are so hungry for deals that they've been getting smaller and smaller in what they've been willing to buy. Really? So it, whereas you wouldn't typically see a private equity firm buying a company for, I don't know, sub 20 million bucks five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, now we're seeing you know, deals in the five, ten million dollar range. Um, now, what those translate into in terms of revenues or EBITDA—that's that's, again me not being the valuation guy—but um, we are seeing smaller deals being done now. Hmm. Yeah. I, I would typically though tell sellers if they're not in a hurry, build a business, grow it. You'll, you'll get more money if you've got higher revenues and a higher EBITDA than than what you're doing if you're relatively small. Yeah. So is there a specific metric buyers are looking for when deciding to buy a business? Well, I think profitability would, would, would be it. Um, you know, these types of businesses are not startups. You know, you're, you're Silicon Valley startups, which can run for years without ever being profitable, but they're growing market share and they're getting brand recognition and all these things. That's a, that's a whole other type of business than being in the trades, whether that's pool or plumbing or anything else. So uh, you know, consistent revenue consistent profitability is probably the biggest thing how often do you not get to a deal like or is it always some negotiation that gets you there or or do you ever just get to the end and just walk away just can't get it done it it happens it's rare um i would say that my experience better than 90 percent of the time if you get to a signed letter of intent you'll get to closing can that letter of intent just be two guys sitting at a bar? I mean, is that, I mean, it can yeah. be, right? Yeah. yeah. And in fact, I've had deals where the parties are working on a letter of intent and then they just go, you know what? Let's quit wasting time with this. Let's just go. Let's just, we, we, we've talked about, we know what the ideas are, the numbers are. Let's just get right to work on the definitive purchase agreement. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, the letter of intent is a useful guidepost. It's not critical, um, but yeah, it can happen. Hey, Garth, Craig asked a question a little earlier about what metric, and you were said you kept going back just to profitability. Yeah. But, but, but also, could it be the technology they have and the, and the 
intellectual property they have and intellectual property they have and and the outlook of what it could do down the road as well. Do they do they do they look at that too? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean it depends on the business. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, a software company is going to be looked at far differently than a pool construction company. Right. Uh, I was really thinking of it more in the context of yeah. There's not a lot of typically a lot of IP. There might be maybe someone's got a, a groovy piece of software for pool design um, or scheduling or something like that. But for the most part, these businesses tend to be more uh, nuts and bolts. Mm-hmm. So there's less of that. Yeah, like a manufacturer that has great intellectual property and coming out with brand new products and stuff, and they're seeing what the future could look like for that. Yeah. I think they, they they do look at that. But you're right. Patent is portfolio. It, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I get the pool builders more 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 of a, a niche side of it. But yep. So patent that waterless pool first, and then go for it. <laughs> oh, that's so. right. Yeah, I tell you, it's going to be a thing one day. <laughs> waterless pool. Be swimming in air. <laughs> Well, but those new goggles by Apple, you just you put those on and swim, swim, swim away. You just sell them the swim shell. Up. You sell them the shell, and then you AI in the water. That's right. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> so how much does it cost to sell a business? Uh, I'm sure everyone wants to know. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a chunk of money. Uh, obviously, if you get it out of the, paid out of the sale proceeds, it's, it's, it's still a chunk of money, but it's, it's, um, it's not the same as going out of pocket, it, it's going to vary. Um, you know, lawyers and accountants typically charge by the hour. Um, investment bankers or th- those types or market intermediaries, they typically charge as a percentage of the deal value. And that's somewhat negotiable. But just say on average, let's say it's going to be somewhere around, say, 2% of the deal value. Um, and, but they only get paid if the deal closes. Okay. Uh, lawyers and accountants like to believe that we're going to get paid whether the deal closes or not uh, because you know we're doing the work and most times in those rare instances where the deals don't close it's not our fault um, are you saying that that's the way that you guys are structured yeah or yeah I mean the uh, unfortunately and, and, and Buzz can attest as a longtime client that we have yet to come up with a way uh, especially doing these kind of complex transactions where we can say, this is what it's going to cost. And, you know, this is, this is what you'll pay me. You know, for instance, if you're, you know, if you're doing a, a sink installation in a house, you have a, well, the sink's going to cost this, the labor's going to cost that. I kind of expect that I'm going to have to fix this pipe connector or something. So I have a pretty good sense. So I can give you a, either a solid number or a pretty good quote as to what the project's going to be. Uh, M&A transactions are just all over the map. And there's, there's so many variables, there's so many people involved that uh, something that you think it's going to take three months takes eight months. Something you think it's going to take six months takes two months. Uh, I always tell people it really comes down to you know how well the parties play together, uh, how efficient both sides are in getting stuff done, how reasonable they are in negotiating. Uh, so many of these deal terms are fairly standardized in terms of you know, the term we often use, we lawyers, is it's market. What's, what's market for this particular term? And the lawyers typically on both sides, if they're experienced lawyers, they'll, they'll kind of know what's market. So they're not going to be pounding the table asking for stuff where they know that's just not really where the market is. But you can have clients that say, well, I don't care. I, I want this and I'm going to keep fighting for it. And that's fine. But you know, I'm, I'm running a clock. So the more the client wants to kind of argue about stuff, the more Unfortunately, that's that's going to cost. But you can give a typical. That's just if, if things ran. What would but what would 
what can what sure. can someone expect on the lawyer? I know we've talked about yeah. this with our some of our other yeah. guys that you've done business. What typically what could that what would so that if, if a client said to me, okay, I'm going to sell my twenty million dollar company, uh, and the buyer's been identified, but we're going to do I'll, I'll typically say, just based on empirical experience, you're probably looking around one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars in legal fees, and we do our best to come in lower. And unfortunately, sometimes that can come in higher. My goal is to have a client like Buzz who comes to me with one deal, but I do a good job and I'm efficient and I don't you know, overcharge and he comes back to me for more deals. Yeah. Right. So it's just, it's a very difficult uh, number to come up with. Um, you know, we, at least in our case, you know, we bill monthly, the client can see what the costs are. And if it seems like at certain points things are getting out of hand or, you know, I'll, I'll talk to the client and say, look, just be aware this is happening and this is happening. And mm-hmm. um, So it sounds like between everybody, you're looking at quarter mil, easy to maybe five. I mean, yeah, I mean, if, if you're working with accountants and lawyers, and, and I'm not even talking about an investment banker collecting a fee, you, you're probably looking in the area of four to $500,000. Yeah. It just depends on how much work's involved. If you've got a really good set of financial statements, that's going to go a long way to reducing know your your accounting side costs Uh, but on the other hand if you're really not good there then that's going to be a meaningful amount even more the reason to have the house in order yeah i'm sure if you're doing your due diligence and you're thinking about what you actually might lose out on if you hired the wrong company yeah and it might have been a little bit cheaper but you know you're getting screwed out of a bunch of money over a course of time right well and it's a really good point because we know one of the things i often will tell people is, you know, okay, you've agreed on the price. My job now is not only to make sure you get your price, in other words, we get to closing, but you get to keep that money. So, you know, a typical purchase agreement is going to have many, many, many pages of representations being given by the seller about they have the authority to do the deal, their equipment's in good order, you know, they've been complying with all applicable laws, here's you know, a list of our employees, just a, a ton of stuff. And Again, the lawyers kind of know what's market, how that is supposed to be presented. Uh, if a seller is not represented competently, they're not going to necessarily know how they should be wording that stuff. And they could find themselves later with a buyer saying, you told me this. So an example, you know, all the accounts receivable are collectible. Okay, That's not something you typically want to give as a seller. right? You're giving a guarantee of collectability. So... Buyer comes later and says, well, you know, we, we assumed, you know, we, as part of the assets we bought, we bought $150,000 of accounts receivable and we could only collect 90000 So you owe us sixty because you guaranteed payment. Right? Mm. So a lawyer, ideally, is going to prevent that kind of representation from being given in the first place and avoid that kind of a claim being made against the seller after. Have you ever had anybody, like, skip the country? <laughs> like, they're trying to get a hold of them? And they're just nowhere to be found. No, no. I, you know, it's funny. I was, I was just telling someone the other day, I've been doing this now for just past 28 years. And up until yesterday, I, I used to be able to say I could count on one hand with fingers to spare the number of deals I've done where a buyer has come back post-closing uh, and said, we have a claim. Meaning that the parties negotiated a fair agreement the buyer did a good amount of due diligence, so they weren't surprised by anything later. And the seller did a good job 
of disclosing what they had to disclose. And you know, everything was done the way it's supposed to be done. So there is a risk there, but it's really about making sure that's sort of papered up and structured the right way at the beginning. Hey, Garth, talk a little bit about the, the uh, in, a, in a deal where they have a basket where they keep money into it over 18 months or two years that, to, for stuff sure. just yeah. like they're talking about. Because I think that's important that they understand that there's going to be money put aside. I think there's an eight, was it 18 months or two years or something? Yeah, so there, there's, there's two approaches. So what, what Buzz is talking about is a typical acquisition agreement. As I said, the seller's gonna make all sorts of representations and representations and warranties, or reps and warranties. And the typical approach is the buyer's gonna say, okay, we're gonna hold back a piece of the purchase price for, typically it's around 18 months, that timing being it gets them through one full audit cycle after closing. And that money, the traditional approach would be, it'd be about 10% of the purchase price. And it'll go into a third party escrow in a bank. And the idea is that if the buyer discovers after closing that the seller misrepresented something or failed to disclose something, and now the buyer has a claim, third party's coming after them for an unpaid bill, or they discover they, the financial statements were shoddy and they overpaid for the business, things like this. They can go after the seller uh, and there's some money in the bank there in that escrow they could go after. Uh, not as necessarily as their sole recourse, but they at least know if, using your example, if the seller has decided to go to the Bahamas for the next three years, that there's some money they can go after. Uh, the other approach, and you see this in deals that are you know, bigger in the, say, 25 million and up range, has become more common as what's called uh, rep and warranty insurance. And that's where the buyer actually purchases a, an insurance policy. Uh, Typically, the seller and the buyer split the premium, the cost, and the premium depends on how big the policy is, say $5 million of coverage on a $50 million purchase transaction. Uh, and if there turns out there's a breach, then the buyer looks to the policy rather than going after the seller. Hmm. And instead of having to escrow 10% you know, of the purchase price, typically you just escrow either the, the deductible for that policy or, or half of it. Sometimes the seller and the buyer agree to split even the deductible. Uh, and there's there's variations on that. There's exceptions to that, but you know, that's that's really. And usually there's a threshold too. They don't nickel and dime. Normally there's a point where they, you know, if it's three two thousand dollars, yeah. so they don't yeah. they don't always nickel and dime. It's it's yeah. has to so hit it's, a certain threshold, right? Yeah. So there's there's sort of a what's referred to as a, as a basket, and, and so what it'll say is the buyer has to suffer at least X amount of losses before they can make a claim, because you don't want to get nickel and dime claims. Right. Uh, and so you'll have that, uh, and then what you'll also have is a, which is a, which is a cap, and that's saying, hey, you can never, except in certain cases like fraud, or there'll be certain representations that are identified as what are called fundamental representations. Those are things like, hey, I have the authority to sell you these assets or, or, or the stock, or you know, we, we've paid our taxes, certain things like that. So subject to these certain exceptions, there'll be an agreement that says the buyer can never come back to the seller for more than X dollars, X percent of the purchase price. Um, and that may be capped by what the policy is, if there's a policy, or it may be capped by some number. That percentage varies based on the dollar value of the deal, but it's it's generally in the range of around 10 to 20% of the purchase price. Hmm. It's like a little contingency. Hence why you want to go to M&A lawyers, because the language is so important. As you said, his job is to get you the money and keep that amount of money. And language in a, in, in a deal can take, it, it, between that 18 months can take a lot of that money away if you don't, if you don't write the uh, agreement properly. 
what are the, someone thinking sitting out there and listening to this and saying okay what are what are the steps what 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 sure what 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 do i go through to get to the point saying okay i'm ready sure well <clears throat> i'd say the first thing is be prepared get prepared it's a marathon it's stressful time consuming ton of work most successful business people if they're selling a business they're probably already working very long hours layer on top of that all the work you're now going to be doing negotiating and documenting a complex transaction be prepared for emotional wrangling. There's going to be times you're suddenly thinking, I, this is my baby. I built this business. I wanted my kids to take over. Or maybe it's just, I'm so fed up with that buyer. They're acting like jerks or I, I can't take the, the extra work. Be prepared for all that. It's going to happen. You know, eye on the prize. Eye on the prize. We're this close. Don't quit now because we're almost there. So I'd say a big, big one is just get in that state of mind of I'm going to do this and, and, and that old line about how do you eat an elephant, you know, one bite at a time. It's, it's, it's a process and you gotta be prepared for that up front. Uh, number two, like we've talked about, you know, get your house in order. And that's something, it's never too early to start. Uh, you know, if you've got a bunch of oral agreements out there, get them down on paper. Uh, if your file cabinet's a mess, get it organized. If you've got employee compensation arrangements that are all over the map and aren't properly documented, get them documented. If you're behind on tax filings or permit renewals or anything like that, get that stuff cleaned up. The, the, the cleaner the house you have when you start the process, the easier it's going to be for everybody. And the more confidence the buyer's going to have that this is a well-run business. Uh, get your co-owners on board with the concept. Even if they're not yet signed up for the exact deal terms, because because maybe you don't have those nailed down yet, make sure that uh, you're not going to have People coming out later, your, your partner saying, I don't want to sell. Or, or worse, I don't want to sell and you can't make me. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, so um, figure out who your deal team is going to be, both internally and externally. You, know, you, you want to have as few people inside the company early on as possible knowing about it, but you're probably going to need to have one or two. Uh, externally, as we've talked about, get qualified people uh, to help you. If you don't know who they are, ask around, ask for referrals. Most people will be more than happy to, to give a referral. And, and if you get a referral, ask them questions. Ask them what their experience is. Uh, that type of a deal, the industry you're in, uh, you know, you want to make sure you've got people that are the right fit. Make sure they've got the bandwidth to help you. Uh, business service providers love bringing in new clients, but you want to make sure that if, if you've been referred Joe Smith at X firm, that it is because that's the guy that you're actually gonna get Joe Smith and, and, and not some third year associate that's gonna do most of the work. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, those, are, those are probably kind of the, really the, the key things kicking off. One thing that comes to my mind too maybe is, is you, you said earlier in, in, in the podcast is, is uh, come to some kind of understanding of evaluation early on. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't have expectations of something that is way out in left field because I think that can derail a lot of a lot of situations where you're going to go nine miles down the road thinking something and it's not going to be there. Get to that number that you really think is realistic that the market is it's yeah. marketable and get that number. And if that's good and you like that number and it feels good, then go to, go, go to these next steps. But so many people have, and again, it's the typical entrepreneur, the blood, sweat, and tears. We, we all think our business is worth probably a lot more than the market is. So get to that and the right people and team will help you with that. And I think once you get to that threshold and say, okay, I get it. I'm okay with this with this valuation. Then you start moving in that direction. Does that make yeah, any sense? No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. What about, <clears throat> let's say you want to sell. 
where do you go to try and find a buyer? Like if you don't have a buyer knocking on your door or, yeah. or something, what, do you, what would you suggest? You know, it, it's, a, it's a good question. Right now, these days, you, most people don't have that problem because their phone keeps ringing. Someone wants to buy them or, or they've got some intermediary who claims they've got a buyer, which may or may not be legitimate. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're ready to sell and you really don't have a sense of a buyer, you've really got two paths. You've got whatever your own network is in, in your industry. So you might know companies and there's no harm in picking up a phone. And obviously you want to try and have that conversation confidentially. Uh, otherwise, you know, engaging uh, an M&A advisor, that's a big part of what their job is to go beat the bushes and find you a buyer. And they, they put together a great deck and they, they get all your financial information and they, and, they, and they disseminate it to all over. I mean, they, they know the contacts, but go to them first and they, they bundle up in a nice package so it's easily readable for someone and understandable for someone. And then they, they disseminate it. That, that's, yep. that's the best thing that you can do if you don't have anybody. And they will be a good reality check for yep. you too because of the fact that they're not only getting paid if they close a deal. Uh, they're not going to want to waste time with you if your business is a mess or it's not worth that much or whatever. So they, they will, themselves will be a bit of a reality check for you. Now, again, there are different tiers. If you get a decent middle market M&A advisory firm, they will do all of that right. Um, you get these smaller business brokers, um, you know, they'll say, yeah, I can sell your company and they'll ask for a small retainer up front and, and then they'll just blast out your details on some internet chat board and never do that much else. Uh, I, I really don't want to like disparage the entire business broker community. Cause like I said, there are a couple of decent firms, but, uh, you guys got to be really mindful who you engage. You want to make sure you're, whether that's lawyers, accounts, whoever you want to be making sure you're working with the right people and that they're there to help you. I think this was all really great information. I think everybody listening is going to take a lot from this. Yeah, same here. This is a question I've asked multiple lawyers. Yeah. And I want to know, what is your favorite lawyer movie of all time? I thought you were going to ask my favorite lawyer joke. Favorite lawyer movie. Huh. That's next. Okay. Um, There's hmm. so many. I can't think of a single lawyer movie. I think Dude, I got, there's so many I, good I, ones. i got to say a few good men. I mean, oh. Yeah. You know, that's one of those ones, no matter how many times you're flipping around the channels, you see it, you start watching it. He's that's thinking my one. cousin Vinny, I know it. Well, I actually like that's Rainmaker. That's a great one, too. That's a great one, too. <laughs> Rainmaker, that's my, like, that's my favorite. That one's so good. But my cousin Vinny, yeah, that's a, yeah. It's a classic. That one is classic. Classic, yeah. I'll show by Perry Mason. Perry Mason? <laughs> I don't even know what that, that was. Is. You don't even know what the TV series Perry Mason? I don't. <laughs> Damn, Buzz. <laughs> <laughs> what year is that? Oh, 1950. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, I think. <laughs> I, that I, sound familiar. I can't say I've seen. Oh, it. yeah, that was. You know, you know the old Perry Mason. Yeah, I mean, I. That goes I'm, way down. I, I'm showing my age. It predated me, but I, I at least knew about it. It didn't predate. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I want to just say one. I want to end with one uh, bit of advice. If I were to leave this this uh, podcast with for a pool builder, I always say, and I did a whole uh, thing at I think at Pace or done you know, seminars out there. Run your business as you're going to sell it every single day, even though you're not. If you run your business like you're going to sell it tomorrow, you're going to be doing all those things that Garth just talked about earlier, getting it prepared every single day. So when that time does come, whether it's one year or 10 years or 20 years, you're prepared. So just have that mindset that you're going to be selling the business like you sell the next day. Make sense? I love that. Love it. Well, thank you both so much. Yeah, Appreciate your you time. Um, this has been amazing. And 
Look forward to talking to you guys again. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Fun. Thanks, Thanks a bunch. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Yep. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. You can find everything discussed in this episode and more in our show notes below or poolchasers2.0.com. This episode was produced by the amazing Kyle Ald. I'm Greg Viafania, and you've been listening to the Pool Chasers podcast.